Okay, I think we'll get started. It's a few minutes past the hour. Um, so good evening uh, and welcome to the uh, Fairbanks Center's Modern Channel Lecture lecture Series. My name is Arunab Ghosh. Um, I teach modern Chinese history here in the history department. I'm also the convener of the series. Uh, this is our final talk of the semester and I'm delighted uh, to welcome Professor Haomo Joe today or tonight, uh, who will be sharing some of her latest work on, on Shenzhen and its place in the history of China's reform and opening up. I should note, of course, that it is late uh, on the East Coast and much later still in case there are some of you who are joining us uh, from Europe. Uh, so I'll try and keep my introduction very short. Uh, in, uh, but of course, I also recognize that there might be people from Singapore and, and East Asia more broadly. And so a very good morning to all of you. Uh, you know, you have the whole day to look forward to, I guess. Uh, but very briefly, let me introduce uh, our guest today. Uh, Professor Taumua Zhou is Assistant Professor of History at Nanyang Techn uh, Technological University in Singapore. Her areas of specialization are modern Chinese and uh, modern Southeast Asian history. Uh, she received her BA from Peking and uh, Waseda Universities and her PhD in history from Cornell. And between those two, she also picked up a Master's of Science degree uh, with distinction uh, from the, the London School of Economics. Um, you probably know her uh, for her book published in 2019, uh, Migration in the Time of Revolution, China, Indonesia and the Cold War, which was published by Cornell University Press. Uh, the book uh, was selected last year uh, as one of the best books of uh, one of the best books of 2020 by Foreign Affairs, uh, and it also received an honorable mention uh, for the Harry J. Bender Prize from the Association for Asian Studies. Uh, Tamo's writings have appeared in a whole range of journals. I just list a few of them to give you a sense: Diplomatic History, China Quarterly, Critical Asian Studies, and of course, most recently, uh, the Journal of Asian Studies. Uh, and her ongoing work now, her, her current project uh, is on the history of Shenzhen, uh, you know, China's first uh, SEZ, first special economic zone, uh, but in particular exploring Shenzhen's connections uh, with export processing zones uh, and free ports across all of uh, Southeast Asia. So, and of course, we'll, I think, hear more about that today, about that ongoing work. Uh, but before I hand things over to her, uh, just a quick, uh, uh, quick word about, about format. Uh, Tama will speak for about 35 minutes or thereabouts, uh, and then we'll follow that with Q&A for roughly the same duration, uh, finishing by hopefully about 9.15, 9.30. Uh, if you have questions, please write them up using the Q&A function uh, within Zoom, uh, and you're, you're welcome to start populating this during the talk itself. Uh, I'll try and make sure we get to as many questions as possible. I'll also try and curate them to the best, uh, best of my abilities. Uh, I would request before you type your question to, to briefly identify yourself. Uh, but that being said, we are recording this. This is also being live, I think, broadcast live on YouTube. Uh, so if you prefer to stay anonymous, that is, of course, also perfectly fine. Okay, so with no further ado, ado let me welcome uh, Professor Taumo Jo. Uh, so Taumo, over to you. Well, thank you so much, Aruna, for the generous introduction and for the kind invitation. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I would like to thank Mark and other staff members from the Fairbanks Center for the logistics support. Uh, so I share my screen now. Okay, can everyone see the slides okay? Okay, good. So my talk today, as Aruna mentioned, is based on an article recently published in the Journal of Asian Studies. I'd like to thank my friends and colleagues for offering insightful feedback on the earlier draft. 
I would also like to acknowledge the intellectual depth uh, this research project has to Professor Isra Vogel, the former director of the Fairbank Center. So as you can see here from Canton under communism to one step ahead in China to Deng Xiaoping and transformation of China. Uh, the work I'm presenting today builds on the extensive research Professor Vogel has conducted through uh, spanning across half a century. Okay, so located immediately north of Hong Kong, Shenzhen is the first and most successful special economic zone in China. Today, you probably know Shenzhen as the home of Huawei and Tencent, China's flagship technology firm. However, during the Mao era, the geographic equivalent of Shenzhen, the Baowan County, was famous or infamous for being the gateway for illegal migration. From 1951 to 1980, at least uh, 1 million un undocumented immigrants uh, tried to migrate from, uh, from through Baoan to Hong Kong. And more than 130,000 Baoan natives tried to immigrate to Hong Kong. And the majority of them successfully obtained legal residency there. In 1980, when the year when the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone was created, fewer than 330,000 residents were left in Shenzhen. The majority of them were women, the elderly, and the children. The audience here today are probably familiar with Shenzhen's from rack to riches story under reform. So basically from 1979 to 2009, with the influx of migrants from the interior and investment mostly from Hong Kong, Shenzhen's GDP grew at an average annual rate of more than 30%. You are also probably very familiar with the story how Deng Xiaoping coined the Chinese term Tuqu or special zone and used the zone to experiment with market-oriented policies. My talk today aims to provincialize the origins of the Shenzhen special economic zone, which is the very hallmark of Deng Xiaoping's economic statecraft. Drawing on materials from the Baoan County Archives, the Guangdong Provincial Archives, and the Hong Kong Public Records Office, I show that local communist cadres of Baoan acted as agents of reform more than the decade before reform and opening was officially institutionalized as state policy. Baoan's local officials promoted individualized duty-free cross-border trade and informal foreign investment schemes as early as 1961. This strategy framed the relationship between Baoan and Hong Kong not as a competition between capitalism and socialism, but as a symbiotic interdependence between a cosmopolitan center and its suburb. When we shift our focus from the power center to the people on the margins, when we reform reform, not in isolation from, but with reference to the Mao era, the border town of Ban presents itself not merely as a physical gateway uh, to Hong Kong, but also as a site of acute social economic conflicts and on Europe political negotiation between the national and the local, which culminated in the reform starting in the late 1970s. So in this sense, the creation of the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone was not a top-down institutional innovation. It was rather the state's belated reconciliation with grassroots practices of what I call leveraging liminality. 
So I briefly introduced the historical background. Baoan and Hong Kong once belonged to one single administrative unit, and they share a long history as a hub of maritime commerce in South China. As you can see from the map here, also following the Opium Wars, the two places were separated uh, by a 35 kilometer boundary. So as you can see from the map here, uh, this boundary extended from the deep bay in the west cut through the Luohu railway crossing in the middle and ended um, on the east coast in Satogu or Shatojiao, a settlement divided in half between the Chinese and the British. So throughout the first half of the 20th century, the division remained fluid and the movement between mainland China and Hong Kong was unregulated. But residents crossed the border freely and frequently to Hong Kong for family visits, trade, agriculture, and maricultural production. So in late October 1949, the Chinese Communist Party overtook Baoan County. In February 1951, the PRC announced the end of free passage between the mainland and Hong Kong. Technically, after 1951, Baoan residents could no longer visit Hong Kong spontaneously. They had to acquire permit from the PRC public security. For those who engage in everyday agriculture and mariculture production in the British territory, they will need to register with the local authorities in order to receive a cross-border farming license and a sea fishing license. Unlike the militarily fortified, uh, fortified demarcation lines in Germany or the Korean Peninsula, the border between Baoan and Hong Kong hardened after 1949, but remained sufficiently porous for commodities, money, and people to circulate, usually illicitly. Since the beginning of the treaty port system, Baoan people have been engaged in what historian Michael Zoni called regulatory arbitrage. So namely, they profited from price variations and regulatory discrepancies among the multiple sovereignties in the Pearl River Delta. For instance, cross-border living arrangements with the husband working in Hong Kong and his wife and children and the elderly staying in Baan were pretty common among families seeking to maximize income and minimize living expenses. So for these divided households, the capitalist market in Hong Kong allowed a male breadwinner to own Hong Kong dollar and purchase consumer goods, while the socialist system allowed his dependents to benefit from low-cost grain, health care, and public housing. The local summarized this strategy as, quote-unquote, women serve as the bottom of a walk and men as the lead of a walk. But starting in the mid-1950s, the socialist state diverted food supplies from the countryside to the cities to support industrialization. So as a result, Baoan became one among hundreds of rural rice bowls. Pressure to meet state acquisition quotas, most peasants saw no alter alternative but to plant more grain and neglect cash crops, even if the latter were more profitable when sold privately to Hong Kong. The economic restructuring of Baan under socialism also disrupted traditional trade routes. Baan's trade with Hong Kong was put under strict central control. For instance, Baan's fishermen <clears throat> and oyster farmers were required to turn in their catches for state-organized export instead of selling them privately to the Hong Kong market. 
they suffer financially, while the border was transformed into a mechanism to generate foreign exchange exclusively, exclusively for the state. So in Baoan, the reach of the Chinese state to use uh, Vivian Xu's word was constrained not only by the town's distance from the power center, but also by its proximity to what the local communist officials call a multinational market. So this multinational market is Hong Kong. Hong Kong supplied the border town of Baoan with information and resources to leverage against state imposition. So although the Baan people could not entirely escape the intrusion of the modern state, like the people of Zomia, they could vote with their feet by fleeing to Hong Kong. Baan people at the time said openly to the local communist cadres, quote unquote, to escape is brave, to be beaten to death due to illegal migration is glorious. Even if I were to be buried in Hong Kong, the earth here is fragrant. Young Baoan women also concluded the government vowed to liberate Taiwan. We vowed to marry men from Hong Kong. The Baan leadership in the early 1960s, headed by Party Secretary Li Fuling and County Chief Ji Fengting, recognized that the only way to slow down immigration was to improve the local standard of living. So in 1959, to rescue the collapsing national economy, the Chinese Communist Party leadership allowed readjustment measures, including the reopening of rural free market. During this respite from radicalism, Tao Zhu, the top leader of the Guangdong province, publicly voiced his frustration over the Communist Party's neglect of some universal economic principles government, governing development. So echoing Tao Zhu, Baan leaders highlighted the need to give recognition to quote unquote objective economic laws and to supplement the planned economy with market mechanism. In addition, the Liji leadership also identified the structure cause of Baan's underdevelopment as excessive state reposition with which the county chief Ji Fengting compared to a gigantic water buffalo. If this heavy burden were not, to, not removed from the peasants, Ji Fengting said, the masses on the frontier would be oppressed forever. In 1961, the Li Ji leadership implemented the Use Hong Kong to Construct Baoan policy through a 3-5 cross-border trade scheme. After fulfilling grain and export acquisition quotas, Baoan residents were allowed to sell cash, cash crops directly to Hong Kong in exchange for items such as chemical fertilizers, sugar and oil, medicine, and light industrial products. The weight of produce sold to Hong Kong was capped at five jin or 2.5 kilograms. The value of goods bought from Hong Kong at five yuan or five RMB and the travel, fre travel frequency at five times per month. So modern agriculture technology imported through the 3-5 policy boosted Baan's productivity. The opening of cross-border trade also ameliorated the severe shortage of daily necessities. Baan's women, uh, the women in Baan were extremely glad to see the arrival of 10 kilograms of sanitary napkins from Hong Kong. In addition to bottom-up liberalization of trade, 
Li Fuling also lobbied for top-down fiscal support for an infrastructure makeover that would turn Bai into a weekend holiday destination for Hong Kongers. So by highlighting the border town's function as a window to showcase the PRC's achievement to the Hong Kong compatriots and international visitors, Li managed to bring hotels, restaurants, and other tourism facilities to Bai. As you can see from the image here, the Shenzhen Theater House was the first a uh, modern art performance center in China with air conditioning and a modern sound system. So throughout the 1960s, art, art groups, including the China Central Ballet, the National Peking Opera, the Cantonese Opera of Guangdong Province, they put on more than 100 performances at the Shenzhen Theater House. Excuse me. These shows generated significant foreign exchange income through ticket sales. The mini reform of 1961 invigorated local economy, but its regulatory ambiguity also created loopholes for local power holders to reap oversized profits. So compared with the general population, the Communist Party cadres enjoy privileged access to the comfort brought by the cross-border trade. For instance, a local commune leader, commune leader named Deng Xilai was once caught eating a smuggled apple while riding a smuggled bicycle. One challenge, he, uh, he replied, everything is imported by the Baoan County government. In exchange for exit permits, some production team leaders solicited bribes. Sometimes women became victims of sexual harassment and rape. Working hand in hand with partners in Hong Kong, bond office holders even organized cross-border migration, migrant transportation operations, similar to contemporary transnational human trafficking, uh, human trafficking rings. Some local leaders openly marketed their services with price tags. For example, for 500 Hong Kong dollars, migrants could rest assured that their remaining family members in Bahrain would receive aid instead of retribution. For roughly 1,000 Hong Kong dollars, migrant, uh, migrants could be chauffeured to Hong Kong on motorboats owned by the communes. While many uh, Communist Party cadres acted in an exploitative way toward the less powerful, some also tried to deliver better public services. Some commune or production team leaders would facilitate the departure of potential investors or their family members to Hong Kong in exchange for quote-unquote donations for the construction of communal facilities and the purchase of collectively owned agriculture machinery and transportation tools. So, so long as the migrants had legitimate reasons to visit Hong Kong, uh, Li Fuling allowed or even encouraged these illicit arrangements, which he characterized as the mobilization of the financial resources from the patriotic overseas Chinese for Baan's modernization. <clears throat> the 1961 liberalization vitalize uh, the border town's economy while further blurring the line between licit and illicit domains. So as Philip Tai points out in his study about smuggling in Mao's China, underground production, consumption, and exchange 
uh, was an indis indispensable strategy for individuals and even state-owned enterprises to cope with the constraints of the planned economy. In Baan, it was beyond the local government's administrative capacity and also against its mature interest to strictly maintain a clear line between smuggling and legitimate small-scale frontier trade. The Baan government tacitly allowed its residents to exceed the stipulated five jing, five yuan, five times limitation, creating more incentives for them to leverage resources across borders. So individual trade soon developed into large scale exchange for, of rice straw from Baan for chemical, chemical fertilizers from Hong Kong. And this is usually organized by production teams or communes. A more sophisticated and, of course, more lucrative uh, commercial pattern emerged later. So in this pattern, Hong Kong goods were resold to inland China from Baoan in exchange for agriculture produce, which were to be exported back to uh, British Hong Kong. This practice of entry-port trade was an outright violation of the three-buy policy, but it didn't invite intervention from the Baoan government. So as you can imagine, the Guangdong provincial government was alarmed by the expansion of the great economy in Baoan. In November 1961, the deputy uh, governor of Guangdong province, uh, Wei Jingfei, also ordered a contraction of cross-border trade. So many Baoan residents, they initially acted as go-betweens uh, so that they can profit from the two different value regimes. However, now they became frustrated with the policy inconsistency. So they resolved to leave permanently for Hong Kong. At the same time, the information about the relaxation of border control also kind of uh, prolifer, uh, kind of spread across, spread to neighboring provinces from Guangdong. So people from Hunan and other provinces, they heard about the relaxation of the border control. And this piece of information kind of mutated into a piece of fake news about amnesty for undocumented immigrants in Hong Kong in celebration of the birthday of Queen Elizabeth. So the rumor proliferated and triggering a migrant crisis. In May 1962, more than 100,000 people from all across China arrived in Baoan, hoping to reach Hong Kong. Um, so local documents in Baoan describe this influx of migrants as an army charging southward. So these migrants, they ransack private homes in Baan, they looted food, they attempt to seize pistol from the People's Liberation Army border patrols. Some migrants, um, they predicted that uh, a third world war is coming with either Chiang Kai-shek or the Soviet Union launching attacks on the PRC. And many migrants concluded that the Communist Party had collapsed in Baan the Chinese troops had defected and the border between China and Hong Kong had disappeared. Despite a sympathetic Hong Kong public, the British colonial authorities refused to label the migrants as refugees from an oppressive communist regime and carry out immediate repatriation. Meanwhile, the Guangdong government tightened exit restrictions. So provincial leader Zhao Ziyang led an emergency response team to 
Bang'an to intercept outbound migrants. As the PRC and the British Hong Kong authorities collaborated to re-establish re uh, re order, the situation de-escalated by the end of May, uh, May 1962. So the 1962 border emergency was indeed a testament to the devastating impact of the Great Leap Forward. However, at the local level, the exodus was a byproduct of the innovative but also fragile policy design by the bond leaders who tried to create a Maoist prototype of the special economic zone. So starting in 1963, the political atmosphere became heated with radical leftism. The use Hong Kong to construct bond strategy was condemned. Its leader, Li Fuling, was forced to step down. During the Cultural Revolution, Bang was a propaganda outpost, a geopolitical hotspot, and a vital transit station for immigrants. Chairman Mao's later Red Book, the songs such as Sailing the Sea Depends on the Helmsman, were exported across the border, filling the 1967 Hong Kong riots. In the same year, an armed border conflict broke out, the first since Hong Kong's session to Britain in 1842. So throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s, cross-border commerce was suspended, but immigration never stopped. Bang'an was the easiest route to take for mainlanders fleeing the Cultural Revolution, uh, particularly the educated youth who were sent down to the countryside. <clears throat> so although beholden to the radical politics of the 1960s, uh, Li Fuling's vision resurfaced in the early 1970s. After the fall of Lin Biao in 1971, Zhao Ziyang returned to Guangdong as the deputy party secretary. Under his leadership, the Guangdong government partially reinstated uh, the three-five policy in 1973. So a small number of registered uh, frontier residents, they were allowed to conduct duty-free barter trade during their visit to Hong Kong. And the following year, which is 1974, an export commodity production base was reopened in Baoan. Um, after Mao's death in 1976, the new chairman, Hua Guofeng, dispatched delegations abroad to study the experiences of capitalist economy. In April 1978, representative from the State Planning Commission and the Ministry, uh, Ministry of Foreign Trade visited Hong Kong and Macau. At the end of their trip, the delegates concluded that Hong Kong's model of economic growth should be a source of inspiration for the mainland, and Baoan should be the launching pad for this learning process. Bang's party secretary at the time was Fang Bao, as you can see from the image here. So Fang Bao used to work uh, under Li Fuling, and he has very he had very rich experiences handling migrant crisis. Fang Bao took the visiting delegates from Beijing to a border uh, village called Luofangsun. So the average annual income per capita was around 130 renminbi for the villagers, but more than 30,000 Hong Kong dollars for their neighbors across the border. So in his report to nation, uh, national level policymakers, Fang Bao revived Li Fuling's idea and gave it a slightly different name, use Hong Kong to enliven Bao'an. 
In the late 1970s, Bonn was at the center of another migrant crisis. From 1978 to 1980, the Guangdong provincial government reported almost 500,000 cases of illegal immigration, one-fifth of which were committed by Bonn residents. So Xi Zhongxun, <coughs> the first party secretary of Guangdong province, initially characterized the people fleeing to Hong Kong as corroded by a bourgeoisie way of thinking. After being confronted by an outspoken cadre in Baoan, uh, Xi Zhongxin completely changed his mind. He said, the peasants are most pragmatic. If we cannot improve their lives, they will never stay. Our talk about the superiority of socialism was empty to them. Echoing the ideas of the Li Ji leadership in 1961, uh, Xi, Xi Zhongxun designed a blueprint named Three Constructs, which aimed to transform Baoan into an export production base of both agriculture and industrial commodities, a tourism destination for visitors from Hong Kong, and a new type of frontier city. So under Mao, Li Fuling promoted rudimental ideas of reform ahead of his time, but suffered career setbacks as a result. Uh, Li Fuling, in that sense, um, kind of is an embodiment of the spirit of bureaucratic entrepreneurism in the border town. Under Deng Xiaoping, local officials were given unprecedented decision-making power for the pursuit of profit-oriented goals. The Guangdong leader Xi Zhongxun was encouraged to imagine himself as the president of an independent nation of Guangdong and as the flexible monkey king in the classic novel, The Journey to the West. With increased autonomy, Shenzhen officials copied certain grassroots practices of cross-border arbitrage. Uh, at the height of the Cultural Revolution, for example, the Shoko commune on Baan's West Coast had already been collecting reusable waste from Hong Kong for refurbishment and resale. After 1978, this great economy inspired a Hong Kong merchant steam, uh, steamship group. This company uh, managed the Shoko Industrial Zone, which was the first enclave in the PRC that accepted foreign investment. The person in charge of this program uh, was Yuan Gong, as you can see from the picture here. So Yuan Gong was born and raised in Baoan. Yuan Gong started a merchant group's uh, capital accumulation actually through the processing of metal scraps from retired Hong Kong vessels. Um, this, this pattern of cross-water recycling also attracted um, the attention of the Shenzhen party secretary Wu Nansheng. So Wu Nansheng organized a special task force to purchase used tire, gasoline barrels, and cars from Hong Kong and recommended bribing their way through Hong Kong customs with red packets or tea money if necessary. In August 1980, the National People's Congress approved the regulations on special economic zones in Guangdong province. This legislation formally authorized the SEZs to offer foreign investors tax incentives and protection of their assets. Meanwhile, in 1980, the British Hong Kong government tightened its immigration policies. So all uh, undocumented immigrants were repatriated to the mainland immediately. The population outflow from Shenzhen gradually reduced. 
once a cohort division of opposing ideologies, the Shenzhen Hong Kong border became reconstituted into a mechanism of differentiation following the logic of global market forces. So I'm going to conclude by discussing three broader themes. The first is about confrontation, negotiation, and accommodation on Cold War borderlands uh, worldwide. Although Cold War Hong Kong has often been compared with Cold War Berlin, substantial differences exist between the East, West, German, and Sino-British divisions. In contrast with the high tension between the two Germanies, the PRC and British Hong Kong authorities share a mutual interest in maintaining frontier stability, whereas the frontier communities in Germany internalize the division and develop oppositional identities. Very few from either side of the, uh, of the Sino-British border seem to genuinely uphold the dividing line in the 1950s and 1960s. Throughout this period, lineage connection in the Pearl River Delta remains strong despite ideological differences and economic divergence between the two territories. As bond officials wrote in 1959, from the perspective of the natural environment, social and cultural customs, languages, and lifestyles. A Sino-British border does not exist. Neither is there a Sino-British border in the people's minds. The second point I want to make is about the state's flexible sovereignty practices. Since the end of the World War II, we witnessed the universalization of sovereign states, but we also see the kind of global proliferation of enclaves of exception, including special, special economic zones, export processing zones, and free ports. Scholars such as Ronan Palan and Vanessa Oklo have reminded us that this shadowy, uh, capitalist archipelago is not a deviation from our world organized by and into sovereign state. On the contrary, governments deliberately created zones to maximize, cap uh, maximize capital accumulation. Shenzhen's development is part of this larger story of the rise of neoliberalism in the global 1970s, when the Reagan-Thatcher revolution drove Western corporations to the developing world in search uh, of low labor costs. Although its initial growth was also fueled by labor-intensive sectors, Shenzhen is quite unique when compared with other SEZs because it was the social laboratory for China's reform and opening. So China's reform rely on this strategy of what sociologists Iwa Ong called uh, graduated sovereignty. The rel relatively disarticulated Shenzhen Special Economic Zone was a very important policy instrument that helped the Chinese economy incrementally grow out of plan. So last but not least, uh, I hope this study can help us reflect upon the 1978 divide in modern Chinese historiography. If, as Balzac had it, behind every great fortune there is a crime, then China's story of reform and the opening under Deng Xiaoping began with transgressions under Mao Zedong. In the context of the creative transgression of the borderland people, reform was a process of the central government's legalization and appropriation of market-oriented 
grassroots practices that had previously been regarded as illicit. Across the 1978 divide, the local drive to leverage the border town's unique position as a hinge for linking socialism and capitalism has been consistent. Yet, the legal parameters for economic activities set by the state shifted. A messier, nonlinear genealogy of Shenzhen embedded in the everyday and dating to the height of socialism, help us understand the 1978 divide, not as a duality between change and continuity, but as an evolving negotiation between the borderland society and the central government. Despite asymmetries, unevenness, and inequality under one party rule, this liminal space produced new power dynamics and new economic institutions on the basis of what had been previously regarded as circumvention and subversion. Feng Bao, the former party secretary of Bao'an once commented, it was not we which he meant the Communist Party cadres educating the masses. The people taught us a lesson. So that's the end of my presentation. Thank you very much for listening. Great, thank you so much, Tama. That was uh, that was fantastic, both for the empirical richness and then the the way in which you brought it together to sort of suggest the the, the much larger stakes involved. Uh, we already have uh, a few questions, uh, at least one question uh, that has been put forward. So maybe we can dive in, uh, and then I'll try and sneak in a question when I get the chance, also as uh, as, uh, as chair. Uh, but the first question, uh, I think you can you can see it too, but I'll read it out for the audience. It's from uh, McCabe Kelleher, who is assistant professor at uh, Southern Med Methodist University. Uh, he says, uh, a great talk and I much enjoyed your JS article. I want to ask you uh, how you situate your work among the literature on EPZs. Uh, the common story of EPZs is that of the march of the liberalization of trade and capital, paving the way for free markets. More recently, scholars have shown that state involvement in the construction of EPZs was necessary. For example, infrastructure and welfare to prop up uh, the low wage regimes. So at first glance, your story fits the traditional understanding of the simple opening of markets, but then you also show state engagement in design. So could you say a little bit more about state shaping of markets? And if you see your work as disrupting the traditional understanding. Thank you, Mugabe, for coming to this uh, talk. I also very much enjoy your recent essay about Hong Kong and global neoliberalism. Um, so that's a great question. That's also a theoretical question I'm trying, I'm kind of struggling with. I guess one thing I will add is that uh, it is part of the global story, but China's story is a little bit different in the sense that uh, Shenzhen today, as we can see from Shenzhen today, so there used to be a secondary border between Shenzhen SEZ and inland China, but this border has been demolished. So in that sense, Shenzhen today is no longer disarticulated or clearly kind of demarcated special economic zone. It has become a city, right, it's urbanized. And it also has become kind of um, the, the, the kind of the model city of reform, right? It become the core kind of representing the core value of China under reform. And this kind of evolution, I feel like uh, is rarely seen in other special economic zones, such as those like the Golden Triangle in the Thai, Burma, Laos, borderland, or say in Mao Chu's 
or the Shannon Airport in Ireland. So I do think um, China's special economic zone is, of course, uh, the 1970s neoliberalism, but also at this intersection of the end of the Cold War and kind of China's re-entering of the market. And another thing I want to add is that uh, the local, this is not new, uh, new research from me, I think lots of researchers, uh, the kind of the Huanan Xuepai, the South China School has investigated this for a long time, is kind of the lineage clan and commercial networks embedded in the Pearl River Delta, right? So geology, ge geography and this kind of lineage connection uh, made Shenzhen the almost margin of socialism, but the same condition also made it kind of the foremost frontier of reform. Um, so that's, I guess, the three points I would like to point out, and I'd like to discuss more with you, maybe a separate uh, chance about the theories regarding uh, special economic zones. Great, thank you. Yeah, and I think it sort of also forces us to acknowledge sort of how we even conceptualize the state and to what extent do we need to disaggregate it, um, right. especially because you're seeing so much local uh, local initiative here that is such a central part of your your story much before we take local initiative, initiative to be important. Uh, but before we go to a question for the audience, I wonder if I could I could sort of piggyback on this conversation to ask a, a bit of a follow-up because you've done in the talk and also right now in your answer to McCabe, you talked about in some ways how exceptional the, the case of Shenzhen is. But I was wondering um, how, how does it then relate? And you made a good case for you know other sort of other kinds of SEZs uh, in other parts of the world. But how does it relate to you know the, the listening to you and reading it reading your paper earlier? The, the thing that kept kept coming to my mind was how does this relate to Macau and and Zhuhai, right? Because there's a very similar kind of pairing, at least in broad structural terms. I mean, of course, Macau never becomes as prominent as Hong Kong does, um, you know, and it has a very different kind of place in in the economy today. But can you maybe comment a little bit about is there any kind of parallel, or or is is the, is the Macau Zhuhai kind of story completely different? And, and if so, what makes it so different? I, I think you're right, uh, Arnav. It's, it's similar, right? These are like twins, right, in a similar location. Uh, just to add, I didn't get to mention in the presentation, but Macau was also a, a very important transit stop for kind of outbound illegal migration. Um, and also earlier for like indentured labor migrating from um, China to like, you know, the tropical plantations uh, in uh, Latin America, in uh, South America. But um, I think the scale of economy in Macau can, cannot just cannot compare to Hong Kong. And also Hong Kong is, of course, starting from uh, the mid 20th century is um, a global kind of, um, how to say, like entrepreneur center for global trade, right? So the, the networks, the resources, the information, the connections that Hong Kong could provide to Shenzhen uh, just overshadow what Macau could provide to Zhuhai. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of simple physical comparison uh, is very important. I haven't really thoroughly studied uh, the local initiatives in Zhuhai. But I recently heard a talk uh, by Arnie Wessa, who is also writing this book about mm -hmm. reform. He mentioned a very interesting anecdote, like a lending memorial uh, tractor company in Zhuhai very innovatively kind of reinvented themselves in 1970s and did kind of similar cross-border trade initiatives in the 1970s. But oh, thank, you okay. for, right. thank you for the question. Ah, okay, well, thanks. That was, that was very interesting. Uh, we have a, a question from uh, from Howard Schulman, uh, mm -hmm. who, who says, "I've he never visited Shenzhen, but is there any pullback from freedoms currently under Xi Jinping?" Well, I'm not, 
I'm not sure I fully understood that myself. I don't know if you. Uh, well, maybe maybe if Howard is still with us, would you mind maybe uh, uh, sort of supplementing the question so we have a clearer sense of what you mean? Maybe we can, in the meantime, go to the next question uh, and see if, if Howard is there, then he can supplement. Uh, this is from Saul Wilson. He, uh, he says, you mentioned several times the role of commune leaders. What impact did the preliminary periods of opening and smuggling activity have on the long-term relationships between villages and communes and the county, mm -hmm. ultimately sort of the municipal government? Well, that's an excellent question, Sal. So thank you very much for the question. So um, commune leaders, I, I guess they are, um, so scholars, uh, like, you know, political scientists and historians of modern China have debated and I think Elizabeth uh, Perry very strongly criticized against the state versus society model, right? It's not a duality, you know, people who took up positions such as the commune leader or production team leader, they're still members of the society, right? They are deeply embedded in this kind of intricately uh, inter kind of a deeply embedded social relationship and also very intimate relationship in the village and in the communes. So in other words, I think it might be better to try to show their agents of the state, not, not entirely representative of the state, in other words, being a representative of the state doesn't mean they will severe all their relationship, like organic social relationship in the villages. So they are more kind of like an intermediary between the state and the society for lack of better word. Um, and the communes are very important. I understand Sal probably works on uh, urban design and uh, urbanization uh, geography. So many of these communes and villages some of them became corporations, became companies, and became landholding entities. And later, they this uh, the same kind of collective unit under socialism morphed into a kind of Western style, you know, responsible company, limited company under reform. So that's also a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, I think Du Zhen in, in her book, The Shenzhen Experiment, describes several of these kind of commune turned modern cooperations turned kind of, uh, uh, you know, property, property companies or kind of other commercial companies under reform and into the 21st century. Great, thank you. Uh, so we haven't yet had um, uh, any sort of supplement from, from Howard. I don't know if you still want to take a stab at that. Uh, Oh, we have one now. So he, he says, we hear that, we hear about Xi Jinping restraining businesses like Jack Ma's, uh, so the, I guess the anti-PO that he's referring to, uh, possibly rest restraining criticism of the CCP. Is this seen in Shenzhen? Uh, I think you, you are not wrong. I think you are correct. Uh, I think there, there is this tendency for um, more kind of, more restraints over um, commercial activities. And also in Shenzhen, um, there is kind of this twist of narrative that, you know, in celebration of the 40th anniversary of reform, the opening, the key was put on the leadership rather than kind of the social fabrics or the initiatives from the bottom up. I think your observation is correct. And it's also reflected as Arunav and other colleagues know the tightening of archival control in China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's uh, another question that I'd like to throw in there. Well, I was really struck by your, your, your description of how uh, in, in that moment in 1961, um, 
there was an attempt to sort of also present a very different picture to uh, people who are passing through, you know, because Hong Kong was a major point of entry into the PRC and remained one for several decades, right, after 49. Uh, so I was wondering, did you see, uh, how are people, foreign travelers who are then entering, in many cases, these are people who are sympathetic to the socialist experiment that is unfolding. They're, they're entering with, not all of them, of course, but many of them are entering with a degree of enthusiasm in the 50s and 60s and even into the, into the 70s. How did they write about what they saw? Or did, did they see what was going on? Did Bawan then appear to be an anomaly to them? Or did they did they not register what was going on at all? Oh, that's an excellent question, Arunab. I hope in my book, I my book in down in 10 years, <laughs> I will have a chapter on this Shenzhen Theater House. Because it's fascinating, it's, um, I, I once uh, had a chat with Professor Ye Haming, the former chair of the history department at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. She, uh, she actually, as a kind of, initially as a left-leaning student, she went across the border with her friends to the Shenzhen Theater House to see performances, mm -hmm. to watch movies. And you're right, they're very enthusiastic. However, she soon became disillusioned because the Chinese University of Hong Kong, I don't know whether you've been there, is just very close. If you swim across from Shoko, that's the first point where, uh, where you will reach Hong Kong territory. So they started seeing from the seashore near the campus of all these refugees. Mm. So that kind of was a shock to her against what the information, all the information she received uh, on these like carefully calligraphy tours in Shenzhen. So I, I, I think that's uh, that's one story that show kind of this paradox of propaganda during mm -hmm. the Cultural Revolution. Okay, great. Well, so I look forward to, to the, well, the chapter and the book when it, when it, when it uh, is put together. Uh, we have uh, another question from Bright Sue, who says, uh, Professor Joe, thank you for your wonderful talk. I grew up in that area and I'm now living in California. Mm -hmm. What role do you project Shenzhen to play, say, in 20 years versus other major Chinese metropolises, uh, other major urban urban centers in China? Oh, Bryce, thank you very much for the question, for coming to this talk. I also grew up in Shenzhen, so nice meeting you. Um, so with that information in my, I probably I'm not the most objective person to project <laughs> the future of Shenzhen in 20 years. I hope the city will play a very important role, not just in Chinese economy, but hopefully with all my optimism in China's political future. So Shenzhen had once, for example, in the late, uh, in the in the early 1980s, in the Shoko Industrial Zone, there was democratic election, there was like kind of mass participation. And in the early, in the late 1990s, 2000, there was like kind of uh, district level uh, election going on. I don't know whether this will still be possible in the next 20 years, but I still cherish the hope that um, Shenzhen will kind of like what it served in the 1960s, will kind of um, be the source of a new future for China. I guess this is also, uh, uh, it sort of ties back to Howard Schulman's question also in some ways in right. terms of what we're seeing today and whether Shenzhen can continue to be a site of, you know, interesting experimentation or innovation in some ways. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, there's, uh, 
I'm, uh, we're waiting for other questions to come in and I'm thinking about uh, sort of, uh, uh, wait, where'd my notes go? I had, a, <laughs> I had another question I wanted to ask you. I guess the, the, there's, there's this broader, broader question and I haven't, I've, I've, I've heard, uh, you know, Isabella Weber talk about her work, but I haven't read the book yet. But one of the things that also I think is really interesting to think about is the ways in which, uh, you know, these kinds of experiences are perhaps feeding into broader debates about market reform that are going on in, in, in Beijing, right? So the, the, the whole range of economists that she's, she's interested in looking at. And Julian Gilberts also looks at, and you cite him, looks at one aspect of this also, the, the influence of sort of American economists. Uh, so, yeah, so do you, do you have any thoughts about, about, you know, how much of this is feeding into those broader debates? Uh, you know, because the whole idea is not to, you know, at least what, what my understanding of what, what Isabella Weber is arguing is, is not to sort of have this kind of rabbit embrace of a market economy, how to avoid the kind of the shock therapy that as she, as she calls it in her title, uh, that, that the World Bank and the IMF sort of recommend, uh, have been recommending for, for a long time, or were recommending during these decades. Uh, so mm -hmm. do, you, do you see any kind of link between these kinds of experiences and, and the formulation of economic Call it not so much practice, but actual you know, like an approach to, to, to the market itself. And this ties in some ways to uh, Barry Norton's growing out of the plan kind of idea also, right? It's more organic. Mm -hmm. So he talks about it in terms of price reform. It sort of just happens. It, it's not, you know, it's not something that was mandated by, by, by fiat. It wasn't by fiat, but it happened through, through essentially enterprise reform and other things. So I, I don't know if you have, what your thoughts are. Right, right, right. That's uh, that's a very good point, Arunab. I haven't I haven't read Isabel's book yet, but I read uh, Julian's. Okay. Yeah. That's the problem. That's yeah. why we're all waiting to read it. And we yeah, all need to read after the semester ends. I read part of Julian's book. Um, I think that connection between what is happening in Shenzhen and what is happening in Beijing is something I need to make in a book project. But uh, one thing I'll mention is that I think I might probably have the resource because. Uh, so Shenzhen University has a special economic zone center, a special uh, special economic zone research center. So it was established uh, in, I think, Shenzhen University is pretty young, it's established in 1983. Uh, so my mother was actually the director of that research center. So she, so her trajectory kind of maybe tell how what is happening on the ground interacted with the academic conversation that was happening. She was tradition, she was trained as economic historian starting ancient Chinese economic thought. And later she studied all the Marxist economy uh, theory. So when she arrived in, she arrived in Shenzhen, I remember very vividly she needed to start preparing for a new course called Western Economic Theory, which is like microeconomic and mm. ma ma macroeconomics, right? So I think that possibly could be a starting point for mm -hmm. me to mm -hmm. explore this, you know, what is happening on the ground and what is happening in the intellectual academic world. Right, right. Great. Thank you. Uh, so we have a few other questions here. This is from an anonymous attendee who asks, some current commentary in the news suggests that restrictions in Hong Kong that have been happening are likely to benefit Shenzhen. Uh, right. What are your thoughts on that? Mm, that's a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> um, that's the commentary. I don't think, I don't think logically speaking, if Hong Kong suffer, I don't think Shenzhen will benefit. Historically speaking, I think the two are kind of uh, symbiotic, right? They're very intimately connected. 
And I think the history of reform opening already uh, validated, proved that cutting itself off from the world is not the way to go. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't think that commentary, the, that commentary probably is very sensational, but I, I think theoretically and logically, I don't think it makes sense. It would not work out. And there's also been some commentary, I guess, that says that if, if there is a financial center that might benefit or an, an economic sort of center that might benefit, it's, it's likely to be Shanghai. Uh, right, right. Financial services. Again, I don't know, how, you know, what, what, what will happen, but that, that has also been part of the commentary in terms of the, the flight of a lot of sort of financial services mm -hmm. firms from Hong Kong, the anticipated flight. Uh, which, right. Yeah, and also Singapore. <laughs> well, Singapore, and especially you know, given the importance of, of these firms for for companies within on, on the mainland, uh, and that, that that service then will be picked up by Shanghai. That's sort of what I've also read, but I, again, I don't know uh, that yeah. it's, it's somewhat you know, I don't I don't know what will really happen. Um, so we have uh, we have a question from uh, Mo Mo who says, "Thank you, Professor Zhou. My name is uh, Mo Huyin, uh, a history student from Shenzhen." It was great to learn so much about the history of my city. You mentioned earlier that Bawan and Hong Kong border is similar to the Berlin border in the Cold War. However, mm -hmm. the Berlin border was a result of multi-country participation. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about more things about more about Bawan uh, and Hong Kong's relationship in the context of the Cold War background? Did other external factors involve uh, involve Maori immigration and this process of SEZ establishment, or was this a spontaneous act? So, I guess what role did the Cold War play? more broadly speaking is the question. Right, right. Uh, thank you again for the question. So nice to meet another Shenzhen native in this seminar. I, uh, that's a great question. You're absolutely right. Um, so uh, Berlin situation was more complicated and it, it involved multi-country participation. Um, in the case of the Sino-British border, one thing is that although, you know, Mao's China has this very strong rhetoric about anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, uh, the PRC tolerated the continuation of British colonial rule in Hong Kong, right? So there are multiple theories. Mao Zedong once famously said, Hong Kong is a wasteland, we don't care about it. But um, in reality, probably because Hong Kong was economically too important for uh, the PRC, right? So PRC wouldn't try to disrupt the status quo because that would cause a huge damage to the PRC national economy. So my, uh, there is another book for me to read, I think no, several more books. Uh, for example, um, uh, Peter Hamilton's Made in Hong Kong and uh, my friend Jason Kelly's forthcoming book, Maui's uh, Markets, and also uh, Elizabeth Engelson's, uh, I think also forthcoming book about reform era US-China trade relations, right? So Hong Kong is indispensable in this story, no matter under socialism or during reform. So in that sense, uh, you, you can tell like there is incentive for both Britain and uh, China PRC to maintain stability um, on the frontier. So that make the whole overall geopolitical situation very different from Berlin. Great, great. thank you. We have uh, another very interesting question um, that ties into your other area of expertise, I guess, Southeast Asia. This is from, from Fan Yang. Associate Professor of Media and Communication Studies uh, at UMBC, uh, who also grew up in Shenzhen uh, and is working now on a new project uh, on Shenzhen as a media city of the Global South. Uh, and they're asking, could you talk more about the connections you've uncovered in your research between the city's history and Southeast Asia uh, and among other Southern locale, locales? 
Professor Yang, thank you for coming. I'm a big fan of your work on Shenzhen uh, in Shenzhen. So I'm super honored to see you here. I didn't know you also grew up in Shenzhen. So this is like a Shenzhen Baan Native Place Association meeting. Um, the connection between uh, Shenzhen and Southeast Asia, very interesting. So I just wrote a very bad draft of a paper about on this topic. So um, there was uh, one example on one anecdote I will offer is that uh, you probably know the window, window to the world or uh, miniature. So it's kind of like a miniature park collecting all the landmarks of the world from Alpha Towers, you know, to uh, whatever you have in Europe. And you also have this China uh, folk culture village, Jinxiu uh, Zhonghua, uh, is also a miniature of landscape in China. So the designer, the architect who came up with this idea called Meng Da Chang, he's has a very interesting experience. He was born in Tianjin, but he his parents worked for China Radio in uh, in India. So he spent his childhood in India and later studied in Europe and ultimately became a Singaporean citizen. He designed a US campus in Singapore. And later he went to Shenzhen. Um, so there is kind of like inspiration of the garden city idea, transplantation of the garden city idea in Singapore to Shenzhen in, uh, in that sense. And more broadly, so I'm also writing this piece about uh, the, so you heard, we heard about Chinatown all across the world, right? So in Shenzhen, there is an overseas China, overseas Chinese town. So it's a misnomer, right? What is an overseas Chinese town? It's actually uh, the name come from uh, over Huangming overseas Chinese farm. So it's a settlement for uh, Chinese from Malaya, Indonesia, and the majority actually came from Vietnam in 1979 uh, after the third Indochina conflict. And they were uh, basically resettled on the farm and uh, they were in charge of like uh, milk production, diary production. <laughs> and for export to Hong Kong. And later this entity of the Guangming farm kind of evolved into this overseas Chinese town company. And the company now became like a, um, a, a kind of a state owned enterprise and exporting this miniature landscape and tourism to other cities all across China, like Changsha, Hangzhou. So that's one thing I'd like to, yeah, share anecdote about Southeast Asian Shenzhen connection. Great, great, thank you. Uh, we are. I'm trying to curate things so that uh, you know. I'll get, I'll try and get to all the questions that are here, but I'm I'm trying to sort of pick the ones that follow. So this one is interesting because we've talked a little bit about it and about other other sort of comparisons. So we talked about Zhuhai already. So mm. uh, one another anonymous attendee is asking. Uh, I, I'm imagining that the other two SEZs, Shanto and Xiamen, are chosen mm. because of established illicit activities across those locations. Uh, local borders. This is, you know, Philip Tai looks at this kind of stuff also. Uh, have yeah. you looked at those cases, and and is that then that that history of I guess illicitness part of part of the selection? Definitely, definitely. That's an excellent question. So uh, Wu Nansheng, the party secretary of Shenzhen, I mentioned earlier, he's actually from Shantou. And uh, there's one anecdote he wrote in his memoir that, uh, so he he was in, uh, I think he was in Guangdong in 1970s and he went back to his native town Shantou and the economic condition was very disappointing. And at the time there was a visiting uh, Chinese kind of Chinese overseas from Singapore. And he's uh, that basically that visitor said, "Hey, why don't you 
copy the Singapore model of reports because in Shantou, children as young as nine year old know how to smuggle, right? So, uh, so the, that story really tells the line between what is legal and illegal is very, very tenuous, right? Uh, Xiamen, yeah, definitely Xiamen was established because it's across the uh, street from Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Great, thank you. We have uh, another question from uh, Guanchir Zhang, uh, who says, great talk uh, in Aihua Hong's zoning technology, the zone has to be bounded to create and retain value inside. But on the other hand, Shenzhen also strives to be a model city which is open and can provide equal opportunity. So how do we make, what, what do you make of Shenzhen's dual identities of both zone and city? And how does this tension then tell us, what does this tension tell us about the success or shortcomings of the Shenzhen model? Well, this is an excellent question, very theoretically grounded. Thank you, Guangxi. I think, yeah, you are right. Uh, the, the, what do you call the second, second line, the Arxingguan between uh, Shenzhen and uh, inland China has disappeared. However, I think there are still invisible boundaries in the sense of the Hukou household registration system, right? So Shenzhen is a migrant city. You see like kind of uh, urban villages uh, uh, in, for example, at the heart of the CBD by Shizhou, where basically migrant workers, usually from the rural areas, uh, settled when they first arrived in Shenzhen. So there is kind of this invisible boundary of Hukou kind of uh, was the institutional base for uneven citizenship or unequal citizenship uh, in the sense that these migrant workers, they contributed to the GDP, but they were now allowed to conduct social reproduction in the city. So I think uh, you're right. It's uh, the Chinese government is promoting Shenzhen as a model city of socialism. However, this ingrained inequality, this ingrained invisible boundary still exists. So in that sense, I think um, that issue probably need to be resolved. So recently I've been reading uh, Tree Wars, uh, no, Tree Wars or Class Wars. I think I forgot authors, right? The book arguing basically it's not a Sino-US competition as Donald Trump said, right? It's the issue is the inequality. And most importantly, I think the rural population of China, those without urban uh, household registration, their purchasing power should be released. So yeah, that's, that's the point. Right, I think one of, one of the authors is I think Michael Pettis uh, of that book, right? At, uh, at, at Tsinghua or Beida, and I'm forgetting which, but, but he's based there. I follow him on Twitter, that's why I think the name, name struck. He usually says very interesting things. Um, so we have uh, we have a question that's again interesting and kind of connected to sort of contemporary politics, but also identity politics in some ways. So this is the first question if you want to read from the anonymous attendee. Uh, what implications does your historical research have on how we should understand Xi Jinping's current attempts to further integrate uh, Hong Kong and Macau into the greater Bay Area in terms of historical continuities and discontinuities, as well as on local identities in Shenzhen and Hong Kong? That's a great question. Those are very difficult and sensitive question. Mm -hmm. I think the period I'm looking at there, um, the there wasn't so much identity politics. You know, like for example, when the migrant crisis happened in 1962, overwhelmingly the Hong Kong public was very sympathetic. But the situation now, as you can see, is completely different, right? So the Hong Kong identity, uh, according to most historians, 
emerged in the 1970s, right? There was like Hong Kong was one of the four Asian tigers. Uh, there was a rising middle class. And, uh, and nowadays, if you watch contemporary politics, of course, all these kind of nativist xenophobia against mainlanders uh, is pretty rampant. I wouldn't say it's rampant, but you see that on news reports a lot. The Greater Bay Area, mm, I, I'm not sure whether the Greater Bay Area could provide a base for a cohesive identity, bringing people in Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Macau together as previously to the Pearl River Delta organically, right, under the treaty port system. Um, um, right, right. So I, 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 um, I, I, I couldn't predict what will happen, but, um, but I think based on the historical knowledge we have, um, what is happening now probably is not the best way to mm -hmm. go. And one would, one would expect language would be a huge, uh, huge factor in this, yeah. right? Because so much of the identity, not just in Hong Kong, but in the South, more broadly speaking, Guangdong in general, is so much, so much of it is tied to a particular linguistic identity. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I'm a second generation Asian Gen. So I grew up speaking Mandarin. So that's that's a big issue, right? Xinjiang is a Mandarin speaking. It has become a Mandarin speaking right. city. So that's that's a huge issue. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we have uh, a second, a follow-up question from Howard Schulman, which is kind of interesting because uh, he uh, he's asking about how the history of Shenzhen in some ways or the success of Shenzhen is taught. So he says, given lack of uh, a long history and culture in Shenzhen, is the CCP trying to push a particular narrative in terms of statues and museums or other cultural centers or what is taught in uh, schools to children about so, and, and in some ways to speculate what your findings then do to that history in some ways, right? Uh, uh yeah, yeah. I think what is what I presented today is probably not written in the textbooks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you're right. So it's a Chinese, uh, the gov local government put in lots of efforts in exhibition. Uh, so I haven't checked the most recent uh, textbooks, but you can you can tell from the pictures I share there are multiple exhibitions going on, and these are really kind of really good exhibitions. They use like the most kind of, um, you know, up-to-date Western, you know, exhibition technologies and strategies and to tell the story and it's very vividly told. Uh, but as you can see, the, the highlight is on like the importance of the central leadership. So, so they, but I was pretty, I was pretty happy and surprised that they did show some stories about the illegal migration, like some of the documents um, I, I demonstrated in the PowerPoint was actually from that reform and opening exhibition hall. Great, thank you. Uh, we have a, uh, a question from, from Zelda Zhao, who mm -hmm. says, thank you very much, Professor Zhou, for uh, the fantastic talk. I'm interested in the center, central local relations, that's somewhat related to what you just said, central local relations and power dynamics. In your research, do you see whether the local leadership sought uh, for greater autonomy during the Mao era and what kinds of constraints they faced Mm -hmm. That's a great question, uh, Han Yu. So in 1961, I see that so under Mao, um, the local leaders, as you can tell, like they had certain autonomy, but this autonomy is unpredictable. It's not institutionally protected. Like for example, uh, Li Fuling and Ji Fengting in 1961, they were able to implement the 3-5 policy or the you know, frontier trade. 
uh, largely because they had the backing of Tao Zhu, who was the Guangdong provincial uh, leader, and also Zhao Ziyang. So the two of them working a pair, they're very like uh, open-minded, kind of tolerant towards market-oriented economic policies. But as you can see, uh, this room for autonomy kind of facilitated with the tandem of political radicalism, right? So, so once Tao Zhu left and he died during the Cultural Revolution, right? He tragically died, I think, uh, earlier after he took up the position of vice mayor in Beijing. And Zhao Ziyang was later sent to exile in Inner Mongolia, right? Without the backing of these individual leaders. Basically, the the policy fell apart, right? So only after reform is uh, also at a time um, leaders such as uh, Li Fuling and Ji Fengting they had to kind of contest the institutional power of state agents such as those working for the Kowloon Custom Jiulong Hai Guan or the PRC Border Control, right? So these these state agents also had conflicting interests against the local leaders. Um, yeah. Great, thanks. Uh, so we are almost at time, so maybe we can take one final question and uh, and sort of uh, wrap it up. And this is a question again from uh, Hui Yin Mo, who asks, uh, uh, I think an interesting sort of question about, I guess, communication technologies. They, uh, the question is, by, uh, I also heard something about older Shenzhen people, they could hear the radio from Hong Kong. Uh, uh, I think, the, and, he, and then they think this is one of the reasons why the Special Economic Zone was able to establish because Shenzhen people could learn the actual situation in Hong Kong. So I guess just be aware of, of, of sort of Hong Kong radio. And it's some ways an inversion of the, the other story we know, right? Which is of the listening posts in Hong Kong, listening in on, on mainland radio. And that was all you know, tied to Cold War and, and, and sort of uh, collecting, collecting information for, for a slightly more sort of uh, state-centric uh, perspectives. But so does the radio figure in the, other, the opposite direction uh, and, and other kinds of communication technologies besides actual mobility of people? Yeah, absolutely. Not just radio, also TV programs. So when I, I remember when my family, we moved to Shenzhen in 90, uh, 1993. So uh, the first thing that shocked me, I was nine year old at the time, was that you were able to watch Hong Kong TV. And for my parents, the first thing they watched were uh, the Tiananmen documentaries showed on the Hong Kong TV station. So basically it's, uh, so technological wise, I know are not probably interested. You can use what the locals call fishbone uh, tenants. So it looks like fishbone, right? It easily capture the signal from Hong Kong. And later the Chinese uh, TV authorities try to block it. So sometimes you see like this broadcasting and suddenly you see something frozen. Um, so that's their attempt to block the signal. And uh, that did play a very important role. I feel like growing up in Shenzhen for me was a very important and very probably quite a different experience if I remain in my uh, birthplace, which, which is Harbin. And I also written the story about the People's Liberation Army engineering corps. So I know uh, Kovo just spoke in the same series. So these are his people from the third round. They moved to Shenzhen. And the first thing that shocked them because they are People's Liberation Army are the TV programs from Hong Kong. Um, and yeah, so, so the cross-border kind of the, the technology or the radio wave, the TV signal that could not be stopped at a border. That's another very interesting story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, both for a fantastic talk and then for a really, really enlivening uh, discussion in the Q&A. So, um, you know, uh, people in the audience, please join me in, in, in thanking Professor Joe and uh, 
hope you everyone has a, a fantastic rest of the year and hopefully you'll join us when we start up again uh, with the Modern Channel Lecture Series uh, next year. So thank you again, Professor Joe Thelmo, and thank you everyone. Thank for you, Arna. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. yeah.